We're going to be in verse 37 through 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we come to a a passage in John as we continue our, our series in John it is, uh, it's a difficult passage, and, and we're going to see some of that difficulty as we get into it. Uh, but before that, I wanted to tell you a, a quick story. Um, there was a, a woman police officer about a couple of years ago or so who uh, was coming home after a 13-hour shift, and, and seeing that her uh, apartment door was ajar, uh, she draws her weapon and, and she peers into the darkness, and she sees this uh, shadowy figure uh, in her apartment, and, and she tells him, show, show, show me your hands, and uh, he comes forward, like towards, and says, hey, 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 and so the police officer shoots him uh, with two bullets to center mass. Uh, he drops, hits the ground, and, and dies on the scene. And you might think this is a great story of an intruder that messed with the wrong apartment uh, and messed with the wrong woman, Uh, but the fact of the matter is um, that was not her apartment. It was the man's apartment. Um, And if you may have heard the story, this is the story of uh, police officer Amber Geiger, who was tired, uh, came home from a shift. She parked on the wrong floor, she walked on the wrong floor to the wrong apartment, actually the the floor right above her own apartment. And later it came to light that she had been engaged in in sexually charged text messaging. So you can imagine with her tiredness, her exhaustion, uh, with some distraction, that she wasn't actually seeing things very clearly. And so she missed that she was on the wrong parking floor. She missed that the decor on the floor was different. She missed the fact that the number above the unit started with a four instead of a three. She missed the fact that it was a red welcome mat where she did not have a red welcome mat. And she peered into the darkness and missed the fact that this was not her apartment. And she shot and killed a man who was uh, watching a movie, eating ice cream, vanilla ice cream. In his own home. Now, she thought she saw correctly. 
She thought, based on her senses, based on what she was feeling, that she was seeing things accurately. And as a result, she took what she thought was appropriate action. But in reality, it was disastrous. She wasn't seeing clearly. Something had clouded her judgment. Something had blinded her from being actually able to see reality as it is. And, and I think we can relate, maybe not exactly to the situation, but, but, but times where our judgment has been clouded. We've been distracted. There's something else that's been on our mind, and as a result, we don't see clearly. And, and if it's important with, with even little things in life to see clearly, how much more important is it to be able to see clearly with the big questions of life? So questions of like, like what is life about? What makes life uh, meaningful? What, what's trustworthy for pursuing a life that has lasting meaning and value? And, that, and that's the center question that I want to focus on this morning. It's this question of what is it, who or what, is trustworthy for a life that has real meaning and lasting value or glory? That's the, the question. And as we look at this passage, I want to point out two things that are not trustworthy and then one who, who is trustworthy. The two things that are not trustworthy are what we see and feel is not trustworthy to answer that big question. Number two, man's approval or what other people think is not trustworthy to answer that question. And the final point that I'll land on is the Father who is in heaven is trustworthy to answer that question. So let's look at the, the first point. I'm, I'm asserting that what we see and feel is not trustworthy. Uh, let's look at verses 30. This is the hard verse, by the way. Verses 37 through 41. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled... Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, uh, just to recap where we are in this gospel, Jesus has completed all the major miraculous signs that he would do. And at this point, Jesus is transitioning from his public ministry to say some last words to his disciples. And so we see the, 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 the end of, ending of his earthly ministry is kind of right at this point. And so you get in verse 37, or ver actually verse uh, 36b, the second part, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So he's, he's moving out of the limelight, okay? And then it says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so John is, is trying to answer this question of why, did not the why didn't the people believe in Jesus? Like Jesus has provided like all the evidence that you could want. I mean, we read about Jesus turning water into wine. We read about Jesus healing a, a, a man who was paralyzed. We read about uh, Jesus who heals the, the eyes of a blind man who was born blind. We read about Jesus raising a man who was dead in a tomb for four days, saying, you stop being dead, come out of the tomb, right? Jesus is not lacking any proof of his power. And yet, so many of the Jewish leaders and authorities did not believe. The question is why? And there's a couple of answers that I want to point out. One I'm going to save for later. And one I'm going to talk about now. 
And the answer is they could not see rightly because they were blinded in their sight. And the question is, who was doing the blinding? And this is the hard part. It's right there in in the text. Verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and you get um, uh, a quote from Isaiah. And then verse 39, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he, as referring to God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God is hardening their hearts. God is blinding their eyes. What do you do with that? Is, is God at fault? Right? I mean, that's the question I think that naturally arises. So is their unbelief a, a fault of God's? And, and I think the answer is no. And I think one thing, to, a key to understanding a passage like this is to understand that um, God's not starting with morally neutral people. Okay? He's not starting with people who are like chomping at the bit to believe in Jesus. And God's like, no, no, I'm holding you back. I don't want you to believe. That's not the picture we're getting. The picture we get is of people who are already rejecting Jesus. They already have a predisposed notion to reject the truth. And what God does in essence, is reinforce that. I want to go to a different passage because I think you can see it more clearly. A, a very similar thing that's happening. If we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think it's the same exact thing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now listen to this. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The sequence here is pretty clear. They uh, refuse to love the truth. God sends a delusion, and the reason for that delusion is condemnation. Commentators call this, scholars call this, judicial hardening. It's a judgment. It's a form of judgment that God executes. And the way to understand this is to understand first that God has the right to judge. Does everyone agree with that? God, who created the world, has the right to judge. He judges in different ways. Like, I think sometimes we're prone to think that, well, judgment is always when we, you know, when we die at 90 years old and we haven't accepted Jesus, then we're judged. Well, that's true. Sometimes God judges before then. Sometimes he just takes people out early in life or earlier in life. There's an example in, in Acts chapter 5. You have uh, Ananias and Sapphira who are part of the church, but as they're uh, giving of their money and their tithes, they're selling their property, they're lying, saying, well, we, we gave all our stuff, but they're holding some back. And so they lie before God, and God is not pleased, and he takes them out. He relieves them of their life. God can do that. God can also harden someone's heart who has already chosen to reject the truth, and that is also a form of judgment. Now, that's the hard part, right? I mean, no one wants to think that someone's heart has been hardened so far beyond reach, right? That's just a hard thing to hear, but God can do that. God does do that. Now, what do we do with that truth? Is it, is it meant for us to sort of guess who God is hardening and go, okay, we're just not going to pray for them anymore because God certainly must be hardening their heart behind, uh, beyond any help? 
I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. We don't know exactly what God is doing behind the scenes, but God reveals it to us. And I think the point of it is twofold. One, it's to explain that sometimes, I don't know if you've had this, if you're a believer, I think you've probably had this situation where you've tried to tell someone about the gospel and, and they will not hear it, they will not receive it, they're stubborn in hearing it, and, and if you're like me, sometimes I blame myself, like maybe I'm not saying it right, maybe I'm not using the right words. Who was the best preacher of all time? Jesus. And many people still rejected him. It's not always about the words you use or the logic you use. You could be doing it perfectly. And some people just will not believe. It's not up to us to change people's hearts. We need to understand that. And what we can do is we can go to God and say, God, you're a sovereign. God, you are the only one who can break through this hardness of heart. And so it should drive us to more prayer. It should drive us to go to God like, God, I can't do it. But, but, but they even rejected you. So, Lord, I know that if anyone can do it, it is you. Like, it's in God's hands. God is sovereign. Sometimes he judges people through hardening their, their decision they've already made to reject the truth. Now, what was the nature of their rejection? Like, why? why? Why did they reject the truth? I think this is also important for us to understand. If we've looked back, if we look back through um, John, I think we see some clues. Um, John 11, verse 48. Verse 47, I'll start with. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They were aware of the signs that he performed. Verse 48, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here's a picture of the Jewish authorities convening together and going, You know what? Jesus is doing some signs. And apparently they're having some effect on the people who are are, are watching Jesus. And they think if people continue to see Jesus do that, all the people are going to believe in him. And what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come in and they're going to stomp over all of it. And they're going to lose their place. They're going to lose the temple. They're going to lose their status as this sort of semi-autonomous nation. And they didn't want that. The motivation is fear, very clearly. It's not so much that they're, they're not saying that the signs that Jesus is doing is deficient in any way. Does that make sense? Like they're not saying, oh, those signs are fake. They tried to earlier, but they got proven over and over again that they're real. And especially now that Lazarus is walking alive, they can't deny that, right? So they're, they're, they're explaining, you know, we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our nation. We need to stop him because of that. The motivation is fear, and that fear can blind them from seeing the truth, to seeing the power of God at work, to see that maybe they should be more fearful of the power of God rather than of man. That's one motivation. A second motivation we see in John chapter 5, verse 44. John chapter 5, verse 44, um, Jesus says to the same Jewish authorities, How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? And they're saying, You can't believe if your focus is on receiving glory from other people men like you, rather than the glory from God. They're blinded by their own self-interest, their own desire to be self-glorified. Matthew chapter 27, 18 states it this way. Pontius Pilate was about to do the execution, but he realized that the Jews 
Uh, we're not delivering Jesus up to be executed for anything that he did wrong. And so he says this, or it, we read about this in 27:18. Pilate knew that the Jewish authorities delivered Jesus to be crucified, not because of anything wrong he did, but because they were envious. So we get this picture. You start to paint the picture of who these Jewish authorities are. They are fearful. They are self-interested. They are envious. In other words, Jesus, they're not seeing Jesus as a savior because they're seeing Jesus as competition. And he's pretty good at it. They haven't been able to raise any from the dead. Jesus is competition to them. And because of that, they're blind to seeing the power of God at work. That's what's behind it. Regardless of how exactly the hardening or the blindness works, what's clear is that what we see and what we feel is often significantly affected by our fears and our desires. What we desire most can blind us from what really is happening. What we're distracted by, what we're preoccupied in our mind with, like this officer was preoccupied, she couldn't see reality, and therefore she took actions that were quite disastrous. And and that's us in life. If we are preoccupied with ourselves, if we are preoccupied with, um, with envy, we take actions that are disastrous. We cannot see the truth. What we see and feel is not trustworthy to answer the big questions of life. What makes a life of real meaning and lasting value? A second thing that is also not trustworthy is man's approval. Man's approval is not trustworthy for defining what makes a lasting and meaningful life. Uh, Let's look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in this case, we're talking about some people who are a little different. So these are people who who didn't just straight out reject Jesus. They've actually seen Jesus, and they go, okay, I think I believe he really is who he says he is, but I'm not going to go public with that. I'm not going to let other people know. Why? Because I'm afraid. I'm going to lose my place in the synagogue. I'm going to lose the esteem of my coworkers, and so they keep it under wraps. They're more concerned about other people's approval of them than they are about God's approval of them. And in this case, it's a misplaced love. Verse 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the person who uh, is always playing to the crowd. They're performing. It's, It's like a a politician in the negative sense of the word, right? You ask a a politician, like, what do you believe? What are your convictions? And they ask you the question, what do the polls say? In in 1999, President Trump said uh, he is very much pro-choice. But when he's running for president as a Republican, he's very much pro-life, One that goes back a little further, if you remember when John Kerry ran for president, uh, before he ran for president, he was a senator and he voted for the war. And then when he started to run for president as a Democratic, he was very much against the war. And and they called him out on it. They said, said, aren't you flip-flopping? He said, well, let me explain. I, I voted for the war before I voted against it. That makes a lot of sense, Junk. It kind of, he took a lot of heat because of that. It's just funny, right? Can we resonate with that, though? This idea that we're, we're worried about what other people think of us. 
I remember um, I was probably in my mid-20s and uh, working uh, in technology consulting, and, uh, and I remember thinking at the time I was listening in church talking about being missional, you know, and being, being bold with our faith, like in the workplaces and, and whatnot. So I was, I was aware of all that and thinking about it, and I remember uh, this one, um, one evening, we went out to dinner uh, with coworkers, and it was like the whole team, so it was like all my direct peers, my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss, like everyone. And so we have dinner, and it's at the end of the dinner, and we're just talking about like life, right? Like not work anymore at this point. And I remember someone brought up the topic of church. They started talking about church. They were going to just church, and she was liking it. And then my boss's boss's boss said something to the effect of, you know, Jesus uh, has some good teachings, and I, I want to believe, but like his, his people or his followers are like hypocritical. And I remember in that moment thinking so clearly, wow, this is a great opportunity to talk about Jesus. And I shied away from it. I kept my mouth shut. I, I said, you know, he's my boss's boss's boss, and I'm just an analyst, and I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want him to think like, I'm just a weird Christian. I'm one of those hypocrites. And so I kept my mouth shut. Why? Because I feared man's approval more than I was fearing God in that moment. It, it, it paralyzed me from being able to, to step in faith and boldness and share something that maybe God wanted him to hear. And it stuck with me all this time because, you know, how many times do you get, like, an opportunity, like, on a silver platter, like, for you to talk about the gospel? Happen sometimes, but they don't happen like every day. They didn't when I was working in the marketplace. And so I say that to say I, I'm guilty of it as, as well. I think we've all experienced some of that. Why is it that humans are prone to fall in love with the approval of other people? Um, if we're honest, I think it can come to this idea of self-worth. Right? We begin to believe that our worth or our identity is rooted in what other people think of me. And so that becomes a very bad place to be. Because if our identity is rooted in what other people think of us, then we have to be performers. Right? We're always on, so to speak. We're always performing for other people's approval. And to the extent that we succeed, we're happy. But to the extent that we fail, we're depressed and in despair. And we just go up and down, up and down, because our identity is not rooted in anything. It's variable. Our value, our very, the essence of who we think we are becomes dependent on what someone else thinks of us, and therefore we have to perform, but the reality is that we always fall short in our performance. We can never appease anyone else perfectly 100% of the time. You can't please everyone. Like, we know that, right? We know that, and yet we still try to. It's not trustworthy, It's not what we should bank our lives on when we try to answer the biggest question of life. What makes a life uh, valuable? What makes it meaningful? What makes it last? It's not based on what other people think of us. Our identity needs a more sure foundation than what other people think of us. And the good news is that we do have a more sure foundation. That more sure foundation is the Father. I'm going to read, this is the third point. The Father of the heavens is trustworthy. I'm going to read verses 44 through 50 for us. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, I wanted to do a little bit of show and tell by way of illustration. Some of you may have been wondering uh, what this black bag is here for. This is the show and tell portion at Renton Community Church. And uh, let me grab this up here. So, so this, what is this? Car seat. There's no baby in it yet, okay? Um, now, I think I know what this is. I, I can look at it, and I, I think I can, I can envision a baby being in this seat. Like, I think I would just put it in the front seat, facing forward, so that baby can see everything in front. Um, you know, good vision, right? We want baby to have good vision. I want to be able to see baby when I'm driving in the front seat, right? Some of you are like, no, that's terrible. <laughs> Why would you do that? Right? I, I, can, I can try to see and feel my way to the right function of this and be dead wrong. In fact, there's a warning on here uh, in Spanish, uh, advertencia, but in English, warning. It says, death or serious injury can occur. It's interesting. This is a safety device, and there's a big warning on here that says death or serious injury can occur. Why does it say that? What's that? Hedging their bets. Hedging their bets. Sure, that's part of it. Um, Right, there's a right way to use it, and there's a wrong way to use it. And how do I know what the right way to use it is? And where the directions come from? The people who made it, right? Oh, that's the point. The, the manufacturer who designed this knows how it's used, knows how it's functioned for the, the, the best use and, and the best results of this equipment. This, I would assert, is kind of what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing is redirecting people to the Father. He's saying, look, if you believe in me, you really are believing in him who sent me. Right? Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And then later in verse 49, he says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. He, to his audience, he's talking to a Jewish audience who would have assumed the existence of God. So when he points back to the Father, he's in essence saying, look, you don't have to just believe in me, like refer to the Father, the God you believe in. The source, the creator of all things. If you want to know what eternal life is, like the Father knows that. Like he's defined that perfectly because he's built us. He's created us. And that's our experience in the world, that anything that you can see that is made has a, a maker who knows how to use it or knows its function, knows its purpose. We have a creator, God, who built us, who knows our purpose, who knows our function, who knows how, to, how we should live to pursue the life that is most valuable, the life that is most meaningful. We find our purpose rooted in God the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus becomes the perfect representation of the maker to us. Jesus redirects our gaze from uh, our own selves, from other people, to him in terms of finding, answering that question, who or what is trustworthy for defining a life that has lasting value and meaning. It's interesting, verse 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father 
who sent me has given himself or given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. So everything that Jesus does is from the Father. And this is how he sums it up. The commandment is eternal life. So, so the Father says, I want for you life. Like the, the manufacturer of the, of the car seat doesn't want people to die. They want people to live. And so they say, follow the instructions. Like, listen to me. I'm telling you, if you do it the wrong way, you're going to die. If you do it the right way, your baby might live. There's a warning in this passage, too. It's a warning label, right? Verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's a warning label. Like God, Jesus is saying, like, I'm not judging you, but what I'm saying, like this is how it works, because this is what I'm getting from the Father. Now, what has Jesus come to bring us? Has he come to just like show us how to follow the commands? No, he's come to actually execute the commands on our behalf. Like that's that's the way in which he obeys the Father most perfectly, is he does what we could not do in our brokenness, in our sin, what we could not obey God and follow him. We can't follow the instructions correctly. Jesus says, I'm doing that on your behalf. So now what's left is to believe, is to trust him, to receive the gift that he gives on behalf of us, which is to follow the directions where we could not follow them. So we receive Jesus, and in Jesus, now we are protected under the banner of all the the right uses of our persons that God gives us. We're protected under the banner of Christ. Now, you might say, but life still sometimes seems like losing. Life sometimes doesn't seem like it's working out the way that the instructions say they should work. Like, what do you do with that? I think this is an honest question that people have. People say, okay, I, I get it that sometimes our sight, what we feel is wrong. I get it that other people's approvals is, is maybe not the best place to find our trust in. But what about the Father? Like, what about the planes that still fall from the sky? What about the sickness that still plagues people? Why do good people still die? Why do people still do horrible things to people they hate and people they love? What do you do with all of that? Is, is, is the Father still trustworthy in the very real pain and suffering that we experience in life? And the answer is yes. And in this passage where I am encouraged is to go back to that, um, that first part where I ask, um, why didn't the people believe? The second answer that I wanted to highlight is, is this, because it was predicted. Isaiah predicted it. And, and to me, this is encouraging because of this reason. God is not surprised by any of the suffering, any of the pain, any of the heartache, any of the tragedies that we experience in life. He knows about it. It doesn't surprise him. He's not caught off guard. He predicts it. He says, this will happen to you. He says, you will go through trials. You will go through persecution. I know. I've gone through it too with my son. But the beautiful thing, what what turned the tide, and it seemed like even in Jesus' day, at that moment, like this was a time of failure. Yeah, Jesus was pretty well known, but he didn't convince most of the Jewish leaders. Most of the Jewish authorities were plotting how to kill him. And then Jesus starts telling his disciples I'm planning to die, right? You think of a political candidate today, right, who, who ends their candidacy, right? Where do their followers go? They flee. 
they go somewhere else. Right? There are no more Kamala Harris rallies. Right? You're not seeing Beto O'Rourke in the news anymore. Like They're done. And if you're there with Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm planning to die, and the authorities are planning to kill me, where do you go? Right? This seems like the losing team. But the beauty, what God was doing, like not only did I know about it, like I planned it that way. God planned for this losing, this apparent failure, because it was through this failure that Jesus would be crucified. And it's through his death that our sins are forgiven. And it's through his death that he's risen again and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that turned the tide. Jesus died and everyone fled. And then three days later, Jesus rose in victory. And, and that's what we can look forward to, is that Jesus rose and is alive and is well and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that what seemed like failure, God turned into an amazing triumph and victory. Where are his followers now? Everywhere and in great numbers because Jesus is who he said he is. Because Jesus is alive because Jesus rose from the dead. And so even now, as we sit in the midst of tragedy, we sit in the midst of great hurt and pain, it's a mixture of things. Stephanie and I were talking about this just the other day. Like, we're expecting this baby, and it's such a beautiful and joyful thing, and yet Stephanie still struggles with anxiety. That's hard for her. And yet we still see around us great pain and suffering, and that's hard for us. And yet we can look to Jesus and see, he's risen There's a future. He will do what he says he will do. He will set all things right in time. And in the midst, we have him walking with us through the suffering. He understands. That's the God we serve. That's the hope we have in him. So yeah, things can be messed up for a while, but we can trust him because he's done what he says he would do in the past, and he will continue to do what he says he will do. I want to invite you to take a moment to reflect on these things. Take a moment to pray. Seek God. Bring bring your real doubts to him. Bring your real pains to him. Ask him to, to show you ways that maybe you're blind to seeing the reality of his power. Ask God to show you that maybe areas where you've been finding your identity and what other people say of you rather than what God says about you. And as we reflect on what God has done through Jesus to send him to die for our sins, then I invite you to celebrate in remembrance by taking of communion. We remember Jesus' body broken through the bread. We remember his blood shed through the wine or juice. Reflect on that. Don't take communion flippantly. Consider, pray, ask, examine yourself, and in faith, partake of communion. There's going to be a song that plays um, as you reflect on it. I think the song's called What Do I Know of Holy? A song that's very special to my wife, Stephanie. Um, listen to the words. Reflect on it um, as we're about to partake of communion. And then afterwards, um, we're going to sing with some uh, recorded music. Um, So uh, there'll be lyrics, so please sing, don't just listen to the recording after the communion song. Let me pray for us. Father, um, I thank you so much for your good news, 
for your trustworthiness. I thank you, Lord, that you're good even in the midst of times that seem hard, times that are hard. I ask, Lord, that you would give us a sense of your presence even through those times. Lord, that you would show us the futility of trusting in our own selves, trusting what other people say of us, trusting what we see or feel. Lord, just show us the the folly of that. Help us to see the beauty of trusting in you. We thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that he didn't stay dead, but is risen and well. And we thank you, Father, for the promise that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and that he will come again, set all the captives free, wipe away every tear, and give us an everlasting life with real meaning and lasting value. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.